How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to another episode of EMS World Podcasts, live from the Expo Floor 2022. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. We are coming to you from beautiful Orlando, Florida, and we have a fantastic podcast series set up this year with some of the greatest minds in the industry. And certainly, that pertains to this podcast today. Pre-hospital blood rollout and what is going on. Last year from the Expo, we had Dr. C.J. Winkler on, basically the pioneer of this. He and his team uh, in, in San Antonio have done such an incredible job rolling out whole blood program. And now we're starting to see it migrate across the country in different areas and specifically the South Florida area is really doing some incredible things. And I do have some all-stars with me that we just were able to pluck off the expo floor here today. So with big things happening, we have big players here. From Palm Beach County Fire Rescue, we have EMS Division Chief Charlie Coyle. From Broward Sheriff's Office Fire Rescue EMS Division, we have Chief Heath Clark. And from Wake Med in Raleigh, North Carolina, Medical Director with Wake Med Mobile Critical Care and founder of 410 Medical, maker of the LifeFlow device, we have Dr. Mark Peel. Gentlemen, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank here. you. All right, guys, this is pretty uh, progressive and, and fast-moving. Uh, it's a pretty fast-moving thing here in, in South Florida. It's not new, um, but it's newer, and there's not many people doing it, and you guys are doing it, and you're doing it very well. So I think it's a topic that we really got to dive into, and, and really, you know, talking to you guys offline, there was, there was some really incredible stories that you had to share about this whole blood program. So as we start, you know, Charlie, maybe hop in and let, let us know how this whole program started. So thanks, Mike. But I got to tell you, you know, you said it so perfectly at the beginning. Really, Palm Beach County Fire Rescue has the opportunity to stand on the shoulders of giants. So when you talk to somebody like C.J. Winkler and, and the folks out at Strack, me and my whole team got a chance to go out there. What they're doing out there is second to none. I mean, and they're willing to share everything from protocol to policies to equipment validation, to trips to the blood bank. I mean, they show you everything, and they're more than willing to come down to help you get your program started. So big kudos to them. Second of all, we, after going up there, came back, but we're already in conjunction working with Broward Sheriff's Office. So Chief Clark has been doing it for almost two years now, I believe, and they've got approximately close to 80 usages already on their hands. So Essentially, what we did was we, we looked exactly what they were doing, and we tried to mirror exactly what BSO was doing. They're just south of Palm Beach County, and we started about three months ago, and we've, we've got six usages under our belt. So. And, and so you're basically teaming up, right? It seems like it's a pretty good partnership between you and Broward. And, Heath, if you want to hop in, I mean, you have close to 80, 80 usages in, in two yeah, I years. Think, uh, I think we hit 79 uh, yesterday. That's impressive. Um, so we... I count the last 20 months or so as the official start of the program. I actually inherited the inception of it from my predecessor, uh, Chief Nugent. She had got the ball rolling. Um, but in that year and a half period that we had 
that old holdover from the protocol, still trying to figure out how to do this and try to mimic uh, Winkler's team and everything that's happening in Texas to the best of our ability. Uh, we had an uphill battle. So approximately 20 months ago, we changed our protocol, we opened it up, we relied more on early signs, and that's what allowed us to actually start really dynamically impacting people's lives. Um, prior to that, we had a lot of missed opportunities that we were talking all offline about, and um, we went back over the data looking at the different options of things that we could have maybe made a bigger change or bigger difference in, and it, it occurred to us that we needed to find earlier signs and opportunities to, to uh, give blood products to our patients. And uh, as, as the chief said, we're uh, at just under 80 now, and uh, the astounding thing, and while it's anecdotal and we haven't been able to do a full study yet, I can tell you that approximately 70% of those folks have walked out of the hospital. That's an incredible number. 70% of those that this was administered to walked out of the hospital. As we know, trauma resus is not anything that we look forward to doing. It's not anything with positive outcomes for the most part, but this is a game changer. And, you know, I'm wondering why this is so important, which is why I'm going to pivot now to the good doctor standing to my right to give us a little brief on how this is changing the way we're doing business in the street. Doc, uh, maybe you can enlighten so, us. Yeah, thanks for thanks for inviting me, Mike. It's great to be here with these guys. Um, trauma is a condition in which minutes matter. And if we're waiting to get to the hospital to start effective therapy, we're not giving the patients the best chance of survival. So these guys' teams and those in San Antonio and elsewhere are now bringing critical care to the field and bringing the, the therapy, not only trying to stop hemorrhage, which is obviously important, but trying to reverse the hemorrhagic shock that came along with it and, and are doing that expertly and with great outcomes. I hope they'll get to tell a couple stories here of some really cool cases uh, where folks who probably wouldn't have been expected to survive have walked out. And um, so it, it's groundbreaking stuff and it's a privilege to be a part uh, of this, of these programs and working with these guys. So. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And we're going to come back to you, Doc, to go over some of that pathophys stuff. But as the doc mentioned, there are some pretty incredible stories. And I think that from our perspective, we hear about these initiatives and, and how great they are and everything else. But it really is about the results. And I think really it's about the tangible stories that we hear. Um, Heath, out of Broward, you uh, prior to getting on, you gave me two stories of patients that you had. I think it's important to tell these stories because it's pretty eye-opening as to the difference that that blood made. So maybe you step up and, and tell us a little bit about those patients. Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the uh, more noteworthy ones, and not that, not that any of them are lesser, but it's just an interesting story. Uh, so out on Alligator Alley uh, uh, in an adjoining county, we were called uh, for mutual aid to transport. Uh, air rescue landed. Uh, there was a uh, single uh, motorcycle rider that was ejected from his bike. Um, basically full amputation of his left leg. Um, Ashton Gray virtually uh, no vital signs, mentation was terrible, a tourniquet was in place. Our guys placed another tourniquet, uh, got a, uh, a unit of blood and a unit of plasma on uh, almost immediately. Um, by the time we got to the actual uh, trauma center where he was being received, uh, he uh, had vital signs that were uh, you know, pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, the exact numbers off the top of my head, I unfortunately remember, but he was up and he was uh, talking about riding his motorcycle again. So it gives you an idea of what a uh, game changer that was. <laughs> yeah, it's a courageous man. And then we, had a, uh, we had a gentleman that was uh, uh, off, offshore a couple hundred yards, hit by a boat prop, um, basically eviscerated, somehow while holding his uh, intestines in, swam back in uh, to the shore, made it to the shore. Uh, our units were already there en route, uh, was also uh, the EMS captain bringing blood. He showed up as they were loading him in the back of the uh, rescue. Uh, for anybody else, that's what we, we call an ambulance in South Florida fire rescue. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, 
immediately got blood on board and while giving him blood he said i don't know what you're doing but please don't don't stop doing that um he uh now comes to trauma uh, survivor day uh, events and uh, evangelizes on uh, whole blood products wow that yeah. that again this is what i'm talking about this is why it was really important to have you guys on because as we say, we can talk about all of these progressive initiatives that we're doing in EMS, and, and there's a lot of agencies that are always at the forefront leading from the front. But when you hear about the results like this, it's going to catch on, and there's going to be other agencies that are going to look to implement this. And I'm curious, you know, Doc, from a PathoPhys perspective, if you could touch upon how this all plays out and the importance of this whole blood initiative. Sure. So I guess I go back to the concept um, that Chief Clark just mentioned, which is hemorrhagic shock. These guys had lost a significant blood volume. We'd have no way of measuring it, but based on what you described, I'd say half their blood volume or, or at least a third or, or more in some cases. And they are within minutes of traumatic cardiac arrest at that point. So in the case of the motorcycle, tourniquet's on. He still needs resuscitation immediately to, uh, to survive, and you guys provided that in the field. The other interesting thing is we think about trauma resuscitation as in, we typically think in the ATLS sequence of ABC. So he had no mentation, right chief? I mean, he was basically not interacting with you. Yep. His blood pressure wasn't measurable. He's white as a sheet. And you think, okay, I've got to manage this airway. And is that the best? Is that the best thing to do? Because if we put a breathing tube in and administer pot and give him drugs, potentially to, to perform RS, RSI, and then put positive pressure into his chest, we actually, have the, we actually run the risk of precipitating a cardiac arrest because he's hypovolemic. And so not only is blood what he needs, period, but it's what he needs before managing that airway. So they're able to get an, a sufficient amount of warmed whole blood on board quickly, restore circulation, and then should he need definitive airway management, it's a much safer process at that point. But the cool thing that both of these guys' stories what these guys can tell you is in many cases those patients resuscitated have mental status now and are talking and oh now we don't actually need to intubate so i always preach in my trauma resuscitation lectures resuscitate before you intubate get volume on board before we try to manage with an advanced airway but what we're learning from agencies like the two you're hearing from today and others around the country is that if we resuscitate and then reevaluate we may not have to intubate because they now have enough perfusion to the brain that they, they don't need advanced airway placement, which is better for everyone involved, for the patient, the transport medics, everyone. For sure. I mean, this is a game changer, right? Because on these types of cases, and, and we had spoken about this before, that you have a significant trauma like this, the first thing that we're looking to do is what? Protect the airway. Always. It's right. always been. Right. But now... Go ahead, Doc. Well, I, I was going to say, say? Don't, you're right. I would, I'm not saying to neglect the airway. Let's assess it, no, get some oxygen course. on them, yes. maybe an oral airway, you know, maybe maybe an, something like an eye gel. But we need to resuscitate first. And those folks were kind of maintaining an airway, right? They, but you think, okay, i got to have someone at the head of the bed ready to manage it, and suddenly they wake up. So uh, maybe you could hear, hear sure. another story that kind of illustrates that point. What do you got, Charlie? Yeah, so we had, uh, Dr. Peel and I had a conversation after, I think it was our fifth, fourth or fifth blood usage administration. And we talked on a Friday afternoon and the same, you know, next week, Wednesday, a couple days later, essentially we had a crew that ran on a young kid that was shot. This kid was shot six times, three in the extremities, three in the torso. And by virtue of training, we had a couple of additional EMS supervisors on that call. 
And what happened was, is this kid was in and out of consciousness. He was pale. He was diaphoretic. His exact blood pressure was 80 over 30. I'll repeat that one more time. 80 over 30. His heart rate was approximately 110. And they were setting up for the airway in the back of the rescue truck on the way to the hospital. Now, crew shows up with the blood, gets in the back of the rescue truck or ambulance, like Chief Clark said. <laughs> and as they were setting up for the airway, we had enough hands on board to start the blood administration. So they drew up the medications. They had ketamine ready to go. They had the paralytics ready uh, right by them. They had all of their other bells and whistles getting ready to take the airway. And lo and behold, about three minutes into the blood administration, which they got the entire unit in in under five minutes, give you the vital signs now. Blood pressure goes up to 110 over 70. The heart rate goes down to about 90. Uh, his saturation was uh, 97%. But the, the most incredible part of it all was his mentation was 100%. AO times four was able to tell you everything that went on prior to when we got on the scene and then currently where he was at on the way to the trauma center. So what we learned was the same thing Dr. Peel and I had the conversation to just four days prior. I haven't even shared it with my EMS supervisors. So it's interesting from his perspective, what he predicted was happening, especially looking at the two-lane registry and what's going on out in NOLA. Yeah. Then I actually got to hear it from my guys, the same thing he was telling me. And ultimately, what he said is 100% accurate. We just don't have a huge case. You know, we don't have a ton of cases to be able to, to qualify that exactly at this point. Sure. But I can tell you from a physiological standpoint, I mean, it just makes 100%. It makes sense. Like, why would that not make sense to you? It, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I think that that's... Yeah, right, right, exactly. It yeah. makes perfect sense as to why you would. And, and here's, here's the takeaway. The takeaway is that this is, this is changing the way we're going to approach trauma. And I think that those that are acting on it in the beginning are, are, are seeing the reward right away. And you're the ones that are driving this, right? This is going to catch on nationwide. It will. It's going to take some time. There's a lot of red tape involved in this. And, and you know, oh, yeah. you guys were speaking a little bit. Um, you know, at a, one of the major differences between between you and San Antonio with CJ's program in the sense that the blood bank situation. Right. Yeah. So there's there is some red tape in there. Just touch upon that a little bit, um, Heath or Charlie. You want to go ahead, Heath? I'll let you take that part. And yeah, I'll tag sure. In on it. Yeah. So so essentially uh, we deal with a third party. Uh, it's a nonprofit, but there's a third party that uh, for all sakes and purposes, we'll say has a de facto monopoly and monopoly from the I-4 quarter uh, south. Um, and they're really your only supply when it comes down to it. And, and uh, I think you're probably uh, getting from the same supply house I am same, in yeah. Orlando. So we're looking at a two to three day transit time to get blood in the first place. Um, it, it's not exactly a rapid turnaround. And when you're only dealing with one supplier, um, you sometimes as a EMS, you know, where we land up in the overall hierarchy of purchasing uh, ability <laughs> and we're uh, national stockpile, military hospitals, and then us, right? So we land up finding ourselves a little short sometimes. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, it pains me to admit this, but right now I only have plasma in my system uh, because of uh, everything that happened in the state here in the uh, last two weeks. Sure. Uh, blood supplies uh, are being rerouted uh, and it makes perfect sense why I'm not complaining about that, but it just points out a weakness in the overall supply chain of the system. That's something we're working on. Um, um, to that point, uh, I don't know if he's still here, but Dr. Antevi was around here. Yeah, Dr. Antevi's so here. So bring him in. Come on We're going to talk doc. about something. Uh, <laughs> uh, we have a joint, uh, a joint issue, a collaboration between my medical director, uh, Dr. Jim Roach, uh, Dr. Antevi, uh, Chief Coyle, myself. We're starting a program called the uh, South Florida Whole Blood Coalition. And the uh, 
the idea and the impetus behind this is to try to figure out a way to A, drive down the cost, and B, drive up the amount of supply to make it available so everybody can get into this game so we can remove the barriers that prevent smaller departments that might not have the funding to get there. Charlie and I are fairly fortunate when it comes to uh, that. So yeah. other areas uh, you know, might not necessarily be in that position. So uh, we kind of want to mimic again uh, R&D, rip off and duplicate, as Dr. <laughs> Shepke would say, right? Yeah, for uh, sure. What, uh, what CJ and the folks out in Strac and San Antonio were doing. So, But I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Antevi, give him the opportunity to talk about this. Look at Dr. Antevi just wandered into the <laughs> booth, huh? What's up, Doc? A little late, but yeah, happy to be here. Right. How are you? <laughs> Good. Good seeing you. So we're talking about the whole blood program. We're talking about the blood bank situation, and we'd love to get your thoughts on how we're going to make this better, how we're going to be able to get that supply, how we're going to be able to uh, you know, spearhead that type of initiative so that we have it readily available. Yeah, well, the gentlemen here at the table are the ones doing all the hard work, so <laughs> I'm just kind of are you, riding you're, on you're their coattails. You're a coattail rider? A coattail guy. Coattail rider. Um, they've kind of laid the groundwork for what needs to be done. The problem, as they've mentioned, I, I heard a little bit of what they were saying, is that the blood banks are not willing to sell whole blood uh, to EMS in, in a way that's reasonable financially for us, right? It costs about a thousand bucks a patient, and if you look at how much you know, any ambulance service gets paid, it's not a thousand dollars even, right? But if you look at what BSO has done and what we've done in Palm Beach County, it's over 80 cases. That's 80,000 bucks. Yep. But uh, Chief Clark probably said how many people have been saved of those 80. 70%. 70%. So is that worth $80,000? So in my opinion, the win here is when the hospital needs to foot the bill for that $1,000. Yep. So the hospital then has to accept the fact that whole blood is to be used for trauma patients. They have to store it. They have to purchase it. And if we use it, then they have to swap it out and then they should take on that $1,000 bill. Sure. It makes perfect sense. Well, it's a continuum of care. Correct. Right. And so once we fix that and the surgeons are accepting of the fact that whole blood is the thing to do, which these guys have proven over and over again, and Mark, thank, thankfully with the registry that was created, um, I would say give it another six months to a year when we have the data, more data. Sure. And then it's, there's no question that we need to have blood everywhere the question is how to get it, and we have to have blood drives where, like the Brothers in Arms uh, type of program, we're actually, we're actually donating the blood and not paying 500 bucks for it. So we donate to the blood bank, they say here you go, and then they get hundreds and hundreds of other units that were not low tide or O positive units that they're selling to the hospitals and making millions of dollars. Interesting. Right? Yeah. So that's, I think, the paradigm shift that we are going to make happen. It's not an if, it's a when. Can I add to that? Oh, you sure yeah. can, Doc. So one, one, there's a lot of data emerging that as hospitals use whole blood in the trauma bay, they're needing less total units of blood subsequently in those patients. So it then is, it makes sense that if we push that whole blood further out into the field and get it on board earlier, we subsequently need less blood. So one of my dreams is that we can ultimately convince hospitals that, oh, they're going to have less total cost themselves for the blood subsequently used in the trauma patient. Therefore, let's help provide that to our EMS colleagues. It makes some sense. That's why you bring the ICU doctor to the show. That's it. he's so yeah. freaking smart. Yeah. I love that. He's, yeah, smart. Thank you. he's the smart so guy on the I have, show. I have a couple questions for the chiefs here. So one is the, some of the pushback you've encountered with your hospitals, namely the surgeons. Uh, if you could talk briefly about that. And two, one of the things I often hear when talking to others about 
thinking about a new whole blood program is no, our transport times are way too short. It doesn't make any sense for us to doesn't make any sense for us to do this. Can you guys speak to those two pushbacks? Interesting yeah. questions. So I know Heath is you know much like myself. He's had to deal with all variety of trauma surgeons. If you can imagine, and we love trauma surgeons. No, right? trauma surgeons are the best, and we can't do it without them. <laughs> but it's really true though. They do have a, a an alpha type personality. If you can imagine, uh, no, I, that. I, it's crazy I never, to hear. But, I never could imagine <laughs> that. But I will tell you this. Um, and there's one part that we haven't spoke about yet. And I am gonna I am gonna touch on that factor of how to deal with the trauma surgeons, how to work together with them. But you know, we talked about cost savings, right? We talked about uh, patient, you know, efficacy and safety for the patients. But you know, the one part that we haven't hit just yet is the mental well-being of our paramedics in the back of this truck. You sure. know. So if you have a traumatic arrest or you have this patient that's circling the drain, for years we've thrown them in the back. You know, previously we've given a bunch of saline, maybe tie the tourniquet, maybe don't tie the tourniquet, maybe take the airway, don't take the airway. The literature has changed over the years. But having something like this is such a profound difference. We talk about a 70% survivability. It's incredible. For us, we've only had six cases, but you talk about a 50% survivability. The mental well-being for the firefighters and paramedics that are, that are caring for the citizens Wow, what a profound impact. Well, and also, Heath, you said yourself, you had two paramedics that were ready to retire. Yeah, one of my, uh, specifically one of my EMS captains walked up to me and said, yeah, I got to tell you, boss, this stuff's amazing. I was like, yeah, I think so too. And he goes, no, you don't understand. I was going to retire. He goes, but this is the first time in my entire career, you know, upwards of like 28 years or something like that, that I feel like I've truly made a difference in a, in a trauma patient's life. And he goes, no, so I'm going to stick around. This is just, this is just way too cool. As, as you know, I'm happy to keep him. Paramedic retention through whole blood. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Sure. So on that front, there was definitely a, uh, there was a, whoa, what are you cowboys doing? Why don't you slow down there? And we should, hey, coming look coming from doing. the trauma surgeon. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So yeah. Like, we're like, well, high irony. <laughs> yeah. He's like, well, let, let me show you what they're doing in Texas. It's working out pretty well out there. We'd like to copy it. We think there's a benefit. We definitely have the volume. We can do this. Sure. Uh, and they still were very, very hesitant to come around. Uh, and, you know, a couple of them uh, in, you know, closing room meetings, just me and them speaking, hey, it's a great idea. I'm going to support you. And, and that support may or may not have materialized the way I would have liked it to have in a, in a uh, public forum. Um, but slowly but surely, uh, blood spoke for itself. And, uh, you know, I, I need, you know, those two cases right there. The easiest way to, you know, silence your naysayers is bring in, you know, bring in proof. Sure. And when you have guys that, you know, swim in uh, and almost die in the back of your truck, but you give them blood and they, they tell you, don't stop doing that, that's working, while, you know, while receiving the product itself. Um, that's it, big. It, it's, it's hard to deny that we made a difference and that it, there was no value in it. So it went from, uh, you know, there might be some value to, okay, no, I guess there is value, value. And then there was some nitpicking like, well, you know, if you give it too fast, you're going to blow out clots. And it was like, yeah, you have to show me that one, man. You know, so in the interim, we're going to keep giving blood. But speaking of fast, and I'll, let, <laughs> I'll hand this back over to Charlie. Uh, but uh, I had a lot of people that are, we have short transports times. Uh, I, I'm resource rich in Broward County. We have three trauma facilities. It's there on every corner, it seems. Um, so with very short transport times, where's the value? Where's the value? Well, I can tell you the value is in, you know, as Doc uh, referenced before, the sooner you give it, the less you need of it. The faster you get it on board, the more of a difference you're going to make. Um, we've had a couple instances, we, we call them intercepts, because right now I'm only, unfortunately, I only have it on the helicopter um, and uh, my EMS uh, supervisor position. You know, so you know, I'm 26 stations, 800 some odd employees, uh, firefighter, paramedics, all of them. Um, so one supervisory unit who tries to make it to as many of these types of calls as they can. If they can't make it there, though, they might be able to intercept them on the way. So picture a uh, F-150, lights and sirens down to a corner. Uh, captain hops out with the, uh, with the warmer and the cooler, throws his thumb up, 
Rescue comes to a screech halt next to him. He hops in the back. The rescue takes off. We get blood on the way. It's as simple as that. It's, it's worked out really well. And the more people that see it, the more they want to use it. Um, so it went from, oh, you're going to slow me down and it's going to take too long. And time is muscle. Time is this. And it, yes, it is. And that's why we're only going to cost you a couple seconds. Sure. It, it's, it's really that fast. And to put things in perspective, and just a shameless plug for Dr. Peel here, um, we were using a pressure bag initially when we first started the inception of this program. And it was taking a very long time to get a unit of blood on until we you know we found his device and once that happened um it, we, we get blood on in minutes talk about that device for me a little bit heath um i wish i would have thought of it <laughs> <laughs> Quite, well, maybe you get cut in if you speak careful nicely careful about what you wish but, <laughs> yeah. but um it, it, it was just an absolute game changer um it uh, yeah I, I, I mean the inventor probably should speak about it more than me mm -hmm. um but well, no because i want the user to speak about it um okay fair enough yeah, yeah so um I'm going to call it fail-safe. I mean, it really is just that well-engineered of a device. Uh, every time we squeeze the handle, we're giving up to 10 cc's of, of uh, a blood product, whether it be plasma or whole blood, because um, I carry both. Uh, I believe Charlie does as well. I know some people use packed red blood, red blood cells, et cetera. But, um, I mean, with that, it just expedites getting uh, on. And I love the pressure infusion changer, uh, changer on it because, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm a little thirsty, I guess. The, uh, the, uh, you, you can't blow a, va a vein. It's just, it, it takes all the pressure in the line, so you actually can't, you know, you can't compromise your access. It's, it really is an incredible device. It just the, the fact that it allows our guys to expedite and free up the, you know, picture somebody in the back of a helicopter holding a pressure infuser bag, pumping it up, trying to get it to work, trying to get gravity to help us, versus just holding, you know, working a monitor or a vent or something with one hand and holding the gun in there and just gently but repetitively just squeezing away as they pump, pump life back into a person. And it's as simple as that, really. I remember one of your cases was a four-minute flight from scene to the trauma center. Yep. And I think that happens the, a lot. In the past, many people, and probably people still do say, there's no way we should bother with any intervention during that four-minute time. So talk, talk about that. I, well, it goes back to the idea of not necessarily having to protect the airway anymore, right? I, I, the two cases I referenced earlier, those are both patients that were definitely candidates for you know, an advanced airway. You, know, you look at them and you go, I'm going to have to protect the airway. The second the blood went on board, that changed. Right. <laughs> when they start telling you, hey, don't stop, give me that, or hey, I can't wait to get back on my motorcycle right. with a severed leg, um, you know, I, you know it, I mean, that's that was all the proof I needed. Sure. Uh, well, I you mean, treat the patient, not the protocol, right? Correct. And that's what it comes down to is, it, is when you start to see differences like this, like I said, this is going to change the way we do things. So I could add briefly to the portion with the trauma surgeons. So, you know, I really applaud our trauma surgeons in Palm Beach County because they did some extensive research. As a matter of fact, one of the times they had one of the residency programs uh, and they looked at four peer-reviewed journals that were out on the streets and all had the same author, uh, Dr. John Holcomb. So they actually got Dr. John Holcomb on the line, trauma surgeon in Birmingham, Alabama, got on the line and listened to the residents really pick apart the papers. That's kind of a tough thing to do. Imagine the author of the papers on the line. This guy's written, he's published like over 500 studies. It's it. The, the guy is, is the guru of trauma. And essentially what he said to the group, including all of our trauma surgeons that were doing all of, due, all of their due diligence in the research, he said specifically, if it's two minutes, it's two minutes too long not to receive whole blood. If you have a three-minute transport, give the whole blood. If you have a five-minute transport, give the whole blood. As a matter of fact, he made a reference to his children. 
his children, he said they're 19 or 20 years old. He said they come down to West Palm Beach all the time, and he says they do a ton of stupid things. He said, do me a favor. Make sure whoever you send to respond to the beach to pick up my kids has the whole blood because I want them to have it. So, and, and the trauma surgeon respected that. So even though they didn't necessarily agree with where we were going at that particular time, uh, yeah, we might have built a restrictive protocol, kind of like what Heath went through in the beginning. I know in time, especially through the initiative that Dr. Intevity's putting together where he's going to bring Dr. Duchesne in and Dr. Holcomb in and, you know, guys like Dr. Peel in, and everyone's going to come together and we're going to figure this thing out. And we're hoping, you know, much like Strax, South Florida is going to show a lot of people in a lot of different areas how to really impact their communities, give the well-being to the providers and, you know, Give the, give the care the citizens deserve from, you know, a traumatic incident? Well, there's zero question, gents, that we are all, well, I shouldn't say we, I'm not part of that, but you are all rowing in the same direction, and you have some really great things happening. You have some really great processes in place. You have some really great minds that are running this. And so I would say, just like CJ's team, if people want to learn more about this and how to start this type of program, how should they go about that? Go ahead, Doc. Yeah, I can start on October 27th at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We're having the Florida Whole Blood Coalition. It's on a Zoom call. Awesome. It's open to the public. Okay. Just repeat that, Doc, one more time, the date. It's October 27th, 3.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time until 5 p.m. 90 minutes of hearing about Broward Sheriff, Palm Beach County, Dr. Holcomb, blood bank, hospital, surgeons, equipment, life flow and cue and flow, data collection, Dr. Duchesne and Tulane. So it's everything that's important and all the bumps in the road that anyone who takes this on may will over will have to overcome. We're trying to pave that road now so that when the next person comes it's smooth and they don't have to fight the blood bank again and the hospitals again. We're gonna, we're gonna try and do this um, statewide but then really expand it so that people could use our roadmap nationally. Awesome. This is awesome. I, I really can't thank you guys enough for doing this because this was really cool. And I, I wish that we had this videoed because, you know, they're, they're actually closing the exhibit hall right now. The lights are going out. But we're all standing around a table sharing a mic, and it's actually really, really cool. Yeah, Dr. Antevi has a laryngoscope that he's using as a light. Um, but we're, you know, this is what it's all about. You know, the great minds in EMS doing great things, uh, coming together, meeting each other, uh, and working together to improve patient outcome. That's what it's all about. At the end of the day, we're here for patient outcome. Doc. And, you know, listen, when you have, uh, you know, amazing minds and EMS, EMS leaders who are pushing it, this is grassroots, and this is speaking truth to power, Yep. and we're saving lives by that. For so sure. uh, it's not the medical director. It's incredible EMS leader. So if you're an EMS leader listening to this, you don't have to wait. You just have to just do it. And make it make it happen. Get right. empowered yeah. to do it. Guys, honestly, thank you so much, Chief. Chief Coyle, right? <laughs> Chief Clark. My, the multiple doctors here, Dr. Peel, Dr. Antevi. <laughs> I, I really do appreciate you guys stopping by and rapping about this because this is great. And I really do hope that the listener takes something out of this and, and does join that Zoom and, and realizes just how important this initiative is and how it needs to be adopted nationwide. So, gentlemen, again, thank you for coming on. Thanks for all you do. Thank you. And we will, talk to you, we will talk to you real soon. And I can't wait to hear more about the data that comes out when we get some more of these things on board. Thanks again. And thank you for listening. 
This is another episode of EMS World Podcast. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. Look forward to speaking to you in the near future. We'll see you from the expo floor. Take care. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 